Okay, so welcome everybody to this very special joint recording, uh, which is both for the Folklore Podcast, my own project, uh, and also for the Archaeological Fantasies Arch Archie Gaming Con thing that they're organising. It's got a name. Uh, it keeps changing every time I look at the Discord. And obviously we're recording this in advance. So Archaeo Gaming Con, organised by Archaeological Fantasies uh, and the Folklore Podcast, joint recording of this interview to talk about folklore and archaeology in gaming uh, and that could be any type of gaming depending on your particular desires but particularly with the people that I have in front of me on my screen here today this is talking about uh, role-playing games and, and similar sorts of things so we have here well I'll let you introduce yourselves let's let's start top left on my screen, Mr. Tom Murr, who is over in Germany. Who are you and what are you doing with all this stuff? Hi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm over in Germany. You might hear this from my uh, accent. And I'm running RPGs for like, I don't know, close to 20 years by now. Um, primarily as the storyteller or GM. And I specialized in the realm of the fairies and the changelings and right now folklore. <laughs> Thank you. And down at the bottom of my screen, the gentleman gamer, Mr. Matthew Dawkins. Would you like to say a little about yourself? Hello. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so my name is Matthew Dawkins. I am a long-term role player, a long-time role player, and also a creator of role-playing games. I write and develop them for various companies, mostly for Onyx Path Publishing, though I've uh, worked for Chaosium, White Wolf, uh, Green Ronin, and uh, a bunch of others too. And yeah, my, uh, my go-to genre is horror. Uh, especially, uh, I take a lot of enjoyment out of the folk horror, which is why I'm here, uh, when we've got a historic basis for what we're doing. So yeah, uh, delighted to be here. Thank you both for taking the time. Uh, folklore is, in essence, in many ways, I guess, about storytelling, isn't it? When you look at the uh, the early transmission of, of folklore, um, then it was very much oral transmission. It was stories around the campfire it was how beliefs were passed on but it was also how people learned and and how traditions and superstitions passed down as well and i think probably for me a good role-playing game is one that doesn't worry so much about the mechanics but focuses more on that storytelling aspect do you think that makes a strong game well uh, i'll chime in immediately uh, the so that's uh, an interesting question because you're, of course, going to get different views depending on the type of role player, none of which are wrong or right. But I think when it comes down to taste, uh, speaking of myself, yes, I prefer a game with a rich setting with a lot of uh, story hooks that the storyteller, director, GM can pull on and hopefully the players can as well uh, because it provides a certain sense of immersion for the people participating in the story in the game uh, whereas mechanics often can get in the way of said immersion if a game is too mechanically heavy now 
there are lots of games available now where the mechanics are, I guess, developed in simpatico with the settings so that using the mechanics is a way of evoking parts of the setting, uh, of the mood, uh, so that when you're rolling dice it doesn't feel like you're being pulled out of the game but almost being drawn more deeply inside it. Uh, so there are certainly plenty of games where it does work, but I think the traditional view of role-playing is that when it comes time to roll dice, everyone kind of stops what they're doing. They roll the dice, they start counting numbers, and then, I guess to use the Dungeons & Dragons example, because why not go there first, uh, you then say how many hit points you've hit off, you've knocked off of a target, rather than you've brutally lost your arm in the tree that you were just uh, plunging your fist into. That's more of a Flash Gordon thing than anything else, but it could happen in f- folklore too. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I, I completely see the point, but for me, setting is more important. Uh, but mechanics are by no means disposable. And Tom, you, you've run various campaigns of which I've taken part in a couple, and, and I've heard more through your work with Red Moon role-playing and podcasts like that, for example. Um, and, and I think you favor this approach too. Is that true to say? Yes. Yes, very much. The, the dice rolls, they, uh, I like to think of them as an action of engagement of the players. So um, we are telling the story altogether. The storyteller traditionally has the the bigger part in in this process and um in some of the games i i play there is no dice rolls for the gm there's only dice rolls for the players and that's a good way to emphasize this is a very important engagement moment for the players so they they actively do something to um, change the flow of direction and I think that's the best part especially if it's only for a short duration if you go into <laughs> number crunching then all of the immersion I build up or we build up is gone and I strive for a very very high immersion game it's interesting you point that out. I think there's an increasing tendency among games for these player-driven roles. Uh, pretty much every game I'm writing for now, come to think of it, never has the GM rolling unless it's a game where the GM can control monsters or antagonists that deal damage. That tends to be the exception. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's rather than you trying to do a contested role against the GM to see who does better, or the GM rolling to see whether his character can hypnotize you, you are just rolling to resist a static target. And it puts a, a hell of a lot more onus on the player, uh, and therefore more narrative control over the player because the result should be, even if you fail, you still have a story to tell off the back of it. Um, And that's a massive sea change in role-playing, probably that's only really taken place over the last five years in a major way, that failure in the sense of narrative failure, dice-rolling failure, 
uh, I'm trying to climb the wall, but I roll and I slip down the wall instead, and there's a werewolf right behind me, is actually there as a good thing. Failure, multiple failures lead to a grander success at the end, which in the traditional heroic narrative is pretty typical, but in the way role-playing games have historically been portrayed isn't the way you want to go. You just want to succeed, succeed, succeed. And if you fail, it's, ah, damn, I failed. Now I'm going to be punished for it. Yeah, and, and I think those those kinds of narratives, as you say, the heroic storytelling narrative, for example, they, they come across very well into, into gaming from those more traditional type of stories. Um, what is it about folklore themes, particularly that makes them good for RPG settings? I think um, they're... In preparation, I I thought about what would I do in a traditional RPG which is not directed at folklore. And then there would be a story about a dark wizard in his tower and he is summoning his undead minions and stuff like this. And this how do the characters learn about this they learn f- probably from from the villagers who might have noticed this or becoming a, a victim but it's it's always some you have the ordinary world and you have your heroes and they venture to adventure but with folklore which is in the middle of the of the every man's life you have a more intimate perspective of the game and i think it's a more natural approach to storytelling because um the villagers won't get that uh, that the dark wizard is an necromancer or stuff like this they they would have a broad idea but it's over there it's not comprehensible for them if you engage with a uh, creature of local myth it's their story and by this you have a scenery with with NPCs who are involved in in the conflict and the story and it's it's more it's giving more color and and more story to to the place and the people you're playing with and I don't think I answered your question <laughs> <laughs> It's perfectly good. It's perfectly good. Matthew, when you're designing games, if you're drawing on these kinds of themes, hmm. is, it, is it the mythical creatures that, that are a good aspect to this? Or is it the underlying kind of themes of the storytelling that work well for you? Well, uh, so it depends entirely on the game, of course, and the gaming group. But to use a very popular folk horror movie such as the wicker man uh which pulls on everything from uh, a homicidal paganism which i think the most pointed in- part of interest in that movie is you don't know how long or if they have even practiced human sacrifice before the one in the movie really um but there's certainly an air of sinister um belief throughout it has everything from traditional horror suspense and shock with things like the hand of glory uh with uh edward woodward's um 
I guess, almost gradual descent into paranoia, if not insanity. Uh, there's the erotic angle, of course, with uh, Britt Eklund's body double dancing. And there's um, the human aspect as well through, you know, he he is there because he genuinely cares about the uh, whereabouts of a missing child, or a child he believes is missing. Now, all of that is layered, and I think that really helps in a folklore RPG. You have to, or a folklore story in general, you need to look at it from pretty much the middle out at every moving piece on the board. Um, Folklore is a fantastic element to have. I don't think it can necessarily sustain an entire campaign without these other elements to keep it moving, such as the raw horror, the shock element, the suspense, the thrills, and having interesting protagonists who uh, Woodworld isn't playing a particularly sympathetic character, but you become uh, very well conscious of his fate as you get near the end. You don't want him to fall into this uh, horrible fate, despite the fact you know what's coming. And I think that is a really interesting part of a lot of folklore stories, and especially the way folklore is presented in RPGs. Characters aren't necessarily good guys. Often they are walking into places about which they know very little, and they make a lot of mistakes for which they end up being punished. And you kind of have to say, well... (laughs) They walked into this, they should have educated themselves beforehand as they make mistake after mistake. But at the same time, do they deserve this? And when doing that in a role-playing game, there's a fine line between feeling punishing as a storyteller. You don't just want to make the players feel like there's no hope. And also keeping that horror element, the destined, predestined element that is often present in folklore. Uh present as well it's it's a balancing act in my opinion keeping that strong monster and strong folklore setting and all all the rest blended together and i think that's where something like um the campaign that we played for solemn Vale, for example is actually really successful and and yet at the same time is is not by a lot of people's definition a kind of fairly standard rpg because it's it's not got, you know, I think a lot of people perhaps more, if they're more on the periphery of gaming, think of RPGs as being that kind of D&D element of there are fantastical creatures and, and you might be one yourself or you're an elf or a dwarf and, and you're out to kind of destroy your way through all of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, kill monsters, take their gold. Uh, I would say I'd hazard that even most Dungeons and Dragons groups have moved on from that somewhat, but... It doesn't mean the perception isn't there, and I think most people's first-time games, if they're running a game for the first time, is going to be to look at the book and see what's most clear, and the clearest points in a game like D&D, or a traditional game, are these are evil, you are good or neutral, therefore you're best off just wiping the evil out and taking what's theirs. Maybe to give it back to the community, maybe to enrich yourself, but it's a very black and white view uh, whereas as you say games like Solemn Vale I would say even Call of Cthulhu has a certain nuance to it but because the great old ones are cosmically evil uh, you need to 
you still need to oppose them. You're not going to succeed by sitting down and doing nothing. Yeah, so it's a that split between good and evil is an interesting one as well. I mean, Tom, you like Changeling the Lost is is a, a favourite of yours and one one that you work with a lot, as you as you said earlier. And when we look at creatures such as the Fae, sometimes we can't even say for definite whether they're good or evil. People aren't sure in folklore sometimes whether the fairies are good or bad. And depending on where you are, perhaps, in the world, they might be one thing or they might be another. And that adds an extra interesting element. What is it about, about that aspect of folklore, but in, and in particular about running a campaign in, in a setting like Changeling, for example, that appeals to you? Um, I think we have to differentiate between editions they shifted a little bit in second edition from fairies are a mythical force of nature and by being these more or less godlike uh, creatures who, who live from conflict and they simply need engines for this conflict so they take away mortals and and reap them for their emotions and, and their stories um that's how they or how how i think they are working and so they you you can't put them into an alignment other than they are themselves and they only think uh, think about themselves in second edition um it's a more psychological approach and they are they are evil <laughs> they are horrible horrible persons who who go for the suffering the true suffering of um of uh their victims and they are vicious and very selfish but they might act as if they are good as if they are on on the righteous side and and they will present themselves as as the 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 people who are looking out for the victims they are gaslighting them and they they might appear to help you they they come to you in a vulnerable moment and uh, offer you aid and in return because they're fairies they uh, they uh their own adept of you and that's probably you or your life or something else like this and there are actually many stories about fairies who who appear to be um good-hearted and they are in some sort of problem and the protagonist will help them rescue them from a dangerous situation and the fairy will repay them with helping them in a workshop or keeping the house clean and then there are some miraculous rules which will be broken in the further uh, further ongoings of the stories and then the fairy has the right to punish the protagonist for his misdeeds so 
they they turn it around. They always turn it around to make it the fault uh, the fault of the of the um, mortal, and um, yeah, be horrible persons. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that kind of unpredictability in in the narrative, I guess, is is something that makes it uh, more of a. It's, it's not a predictable game by its very nature, something like that, I suppose. And that's the thing with dealing with these kinds of supernatural or, or creatures from our superstitious beliefs is that there is that unpredictability about them. Um, Matthew, what have you worked on that is particularly strong for you um, as far as these kinds of creature-based games go? I mean, I suppose something like Vampire... The masquerade yeah. is is very rich in in its background that it can draw on from these kinds of things. But does that necessarily make it one of the better ones? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of people that do love Vampire and probably would consider it one of the best horror games. But I think by their uh, ubiquity in Vampire the Masquerade existing in pretty much every city you're going to visit, there will be vampires. They lose some of their allure uh, in uh, in the sense of changing the loss the true fae are terrifying as well because they are so as you say unpredictable but they're also rare and godlike and so you're not going to bump into an entire host of them by walking around the corner whereas vampires i wouldn't say they're ten a penny but in masquerade if you go to a nightclub in a world of darkness city, there's likely going to be a vampire on the dance floor as well, running the club. Now, I would say, on the vampire vein, to go for a more, again, folkloric, uh, historic look at them, there's a game called Dark Ages Vampire, or Vampire the Dark Ages, depending on the edition. And the way that's set up, it's set in the... It's at, despite the name, it's set in the uh, British Middle Ages. So, around the 13th century. And... The general, I guess, theme is that towns and villages are like beacons of flickering light and the rest is darkness because there are no well-trod roads, really. There's no, um, there's no beacons lighting the way from one civilization to the other. And because you are vampires who can only travel at night, you are penned in to your little fiefdom, whether it is a village, a farm, a town, or, if you're fortunate enough, a city. But leaving those boundaries is what's terrifying, because even as monsters, you don't know what other monsters lurk out there. And so there's a nice inversion, because you are still monstrous, you're still predatory when it comes to mortals, but there's things out there that you don't want to confront. So, again, you mentioned unpredictability. I think the Dark Ages, as it's called in Vampire, is a wonderful setting to be able to explore both history... And you can present history in uh, historically accurate terms. Uh, there's a lot of very good books about vampire, the Dark Ages, set in, during the time of the Crusades. Uh, and it covers everywhere from the British Isles to Iberia to Jerusalem and Constantinople. Um, 
and does so pretty damn well, but then it layers vampires into it to give it this monstrous mythological bent. You know, how would this be different if there were these human parasites riding the wave of crusading armies? Um, And how would they try and influence things for their own gain? So yeah, um, I think Vampire certainly has a place for it. There's other monster games as well. We mentioned Call of Cthulhu earlier, and that's, of course, a classic role-playing game, but it's also a classic monster game with the strange definition of being the game where you never want to meet the monster. Uh, I mean, there are other games that do that. It was probably the first to do it. I think it the first time it was released was, like, 1981, uh, which is pretty early in tabletop RPG canon. Um, but the idea being that as investigators, you have to get as close to the monstrous truth as you possibly can without ever seeing or touching the monster. Because if you touch the monster, if you see the monster, you will either go mad or die. Now, that doesn't always happen. It's not every single story, but it's quite a lot of them, especially the early modules for Call of Cthulhu. And it adds that eerie, suspenseful nature that you want out of a story. Um, while also, to from a critic's point of view, uh, being somewhat unsatisfying because a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios play out the same way, play out the same way as a lot of horror movies do, where you know for a fact this group is going to get whittled down until, by the end, evil will triumph. Um, That's especially common these days in horror movies, but Call of Cthulhu very much set the mould for that in terms of tabletop role-playing games. I want to think a little bit about the representation of magic as well in games. When, When we think about magic in terms of folklore, then I think we're thinking about it in terms of superstition, mostly, and probably looking at aspects such as uh, historic witch trials and those sorts of things. Magic sits a little bit differently in terms of RPGs. How does magic work well as a mechanic um, rather than being something that becomes too unbelievable i think when we look at stories in folklore there has to be a kind of believable element to it to make it work how does magic fit into rpgs in terms of believability and and not being something that becomes just way over the top um so there's uh, there's lots of different ways of tackling it and i know it sounds like we're kind of hammering on D a bit but it's a good example of classified magic systems, Vancean magic as it's called, uh, where everything has a level, everything has a category, and you can pretty much just cast it from a book and boom, it's done. It's movie magic and and video game magic, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not necessarily thematic. It doesn't feel special when you're firing off a magic missile every single round. It, you know, it just loses some luster. Uh, one of the best, or a couple of the best uses of magic in role-playing games are in the Mage games, Mage the Ascension and Mage the Awakening, uh, for World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness, 
and one of the simplest ways that they are kept, I guess, in check is through a system called Paradox. So it's especially prevalent in Mage the Ascension, where if you perform magic that could be determined vulgar, overly vulgar, in other words, if humans, if unawakened humans, sleepers as they're called, see this magic in practice, they will have no way of rationalizing it. Even the universe itself has no way of rationalizing Godzilla being dropped on a city, or or just fireballs being shot from your hands in plain view in the middle of a football stadium. Uh, So paradox is like the universe course correcting and you will be hit with a backlash for all the way up to essentially a black hole appearing and devouring you because you've just done something bad and it means you are confined to playing out your magic in discrete ways in ways that appear believable whether it's through preparation uh, whether it's through obfuscation uh, or, you know, through things like ritual practice or associating with other people that believe the same things you do. Because when you manage any of these, you can then use your magic in these subtle ways that allows you to change the universe, but only as far as people that can understand your magic understand it. Um, and it's, there's a similar thing going on in Mage the Awakening. They're very good they're obviously games about playing mages, magic users, wizards, so it's built around that aspect. But other games go very much into the extreme version of that, where I, I well, to use Call of Cthulhu again, why not? There's a lot of spells in that game that require hours or days of preparation before casting. So you are theoretically supposed to play your character going through the sacrifice that's required to make this incantation, covering himself in chalk dust, drinking the bile of his enemy, and painting a sigil on the floor and so on before he does that. And that makes it become part of the plot. But it's also quite paralyzing for the narrative because it's not really a communal activity. Uh, I guess it can be, but it's one of those things that tends to not work terribly well from a narrative perspective. So, yeah, uh, again, there's always a balance to be found, but it's something not too many games manage to get right, in my opinion. Sometimes I like the idea as well of, of some of these creatures and events and things being on our periphery. And again, this is something we find when we look at different aspects of folklore is, is this idea of a liminal place, this, this kind of boundary state between one thing and another. Um, I recently interviewed Johan Egerkrantz, who uh, is the author of the book Vesson, uh, which is a kind of bestiary of Scandinavian folkloric creatures and history. He's a um, uh, an illustrator by profession so it's a beautifully illustrated book uh, but also very well researched um, and that was picked up and turned into an RPG recently by Free League uh, and has just come off of Kickstarter and, and is going into more general release and I think having played that game that it's hugely successful 
in the way that it works in this kind of boundary state, which very much draws from some of these Scandinavian folkloric creatures, in that we don't always know that just because they are a creature within the game, that that means that they're going to be a hindrance. And sometimes dealing with these creatures is actually, you're dealing with people who are on your side, as well as being against you. Um, most people, when they think of the term Vesson, think of, think of the um, American drama series Grimm, which, which again, works in a similar kind of way with these creatures that some people can see and are aware of and, and other people can't. And, and for all its folkloric faults, if you like, Grimm was, was quite an entertaining series. But I think... Uh, I'd like to interrupt by saying I think Grimm is shite, but do care. <laughs> <laughs> It can be bad and entertaining at the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> but, but where I think it is successful in terms of the RPG is this kind of element of not actually knowing what you're dealing with sometimes. And I think in terms of a narrative, that's really successful. Tom, you've run Vesson sessions. Uh, I've played your Vesson sessions, uh, but you've run them for other people as well. Do you find that particularly good as an aspect to work with? I I love it. <laughs> it's currently my second favorite game, and um, it's the the whole adventure is built around the mystery of of the creature of the Vesson you will encounter. And you have to do uh, you have to do a lot of research to to find out what what is this creature? Will it even if it's let's say it's a troll? Will it be like the other troll we encountered a year ago? Um, probably not. It's a different troll. It has its own strength and own powers, and of course, its own story which is the most important part. So I can't rely on, it's a troll. We have to bash his head in. Because first, you probably can't bash his head in. Um, that's that's one of the most important mechanics of the game. The Vessens are, in the end, uh, immortal to violence. You have to figure out a ritual to appease them, to set them to rest, to imprison them or to kill them. And that's a different part of the adventure. How after I discovered what kind of creature is it, what story is behind it, how will I deal with it? And then in the end, do I want to deal with it? Or do I want to deal with another threat which is also looming there? And that's 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 the part I really, really love. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. I think I think that does work really well. Um, Matthew, have you come across the similar examples of these sorts of games where just because there is a creature in it, it doesn't necessarily follow that that means that it is bad? Yeah, definitely. I mean, any game worth its salt should have that. Uh, again, if it goes, if it just comes down to good versus evil, I think it's a little bland narratively. Uh, but 
hell, let's give uh, let's give D and D a shout out this time because you pointed out, you know, you might be playing elves and dwarves, and in some cultures, uh, they, they are especially Nordic ones. Uh, these can be magical and almost yeah, godlike and capricious creatures uh, but in D&D they're presented as quite playable and in fact there's very much a change on how people are viewing the uh, I guess stereotypical orc in D&D right now uh, you know within the last few weeks to be honest there's been a lot of noise online about should orcs always be categorically evil and I think it's uh, definitely a worthwhile thing discussing because any staple of fiction like orcs, uh, it, it's wonderful to see them being discussed, especially if new thought can be brought from it. But I think a lot of GMs have always been presenting things like orcs, goblins, kobolds, what have you, as creatures that aren't just there to hit over the head and steal their stuff. Uh, there should always be the moral quandary. There should always be the possibility that conflict will lead to discussion rather than destruction. And there should be the uh, the orcs who are just traders who you may want to talk to, who might give you advice because there's something far worse and more elemental in its evil just over the horizon. Whereas a, a culture may be evil from a human perspective, in to use D&D terms, I guess, but it doesn't necessarily mean every single orc within that culture is representative of the worst aspects of that culture. Uh, just the same as you could categorize any person on Earth as not being wholly representative of the nation, culture, religion, what have you, uh, that they belong to. Um, you can go further, and I mean, a bit of self-promotion. Right now I'm doing a running a Kickstarter for my They Came From Beyond the Grave game. And They Came From Beyond the Grave is a game wholly based around 1970s uh, horror movies. Hammer Horror, Amicus, Roger Corman even. Uh, anything where Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Patrick McGee, people like that, Michael Goff, appear with a certain amount of regularity. And Ingrid Pitt, Britt Eklund. Um, but one of the excellent things about movies of that era is that Dracula was never a voiceless monster. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein is never a voiceless monster. Karnstein is never voiceless. They have personalities. Sometimes they phone it in, but sometimes they're also portrayed as quite sympathetic. When you start looking into the brides of Dracula, uh, they are sometimes victims. More often than not, they're victims of Dracula, and now they are trying to be redeemed or they may no longer wish to be vampires or they may be fully fledged servants of the dark lord the prince of misrule or what have you so i think uh in they came from me on the grave you've got the exact same thing we want to portray our monsters as being nuanced as much as it's a fun game with a tongue-in-cheek attitude at times it's still a game where if you bump into dracula you should be able to have a conversation with him, you should be able to negotiate with him, and you should be able to get a head start before he comes chasing after you. I'm going to pick up on that point about culture to just kind of also move this across into the archaeological 
side of the discussion as well. Uh, in that there is a, obviously a crossover between folklore and archaeology in many ways, but but in terms of uncovering our past, they're, they're both very, very relevant. Do you think there are any games that are particularly strong at representing our culture such that when we move forward in history we can look back on these games and say yeah actually they show the culture in which they were developed that's a very good question i think um because i can definitely think of examples that are bad <laughs> uh, that you could look back on in three decades and think oof you know that was misjudged uh, but there's also some that are excellent resources that could double as historic textbooks uh history textbooks uh, such as uh, the Steve Jackson GURPS source books uh, GURPS is by no means is i guess it's de rigueur these days to refer to GURPS as a mechanically heavy flavorless setting but the whole point of GURPS the generic universal role playing system is it's all of the things that it says in the title but what GURPS had for it and still does is an amazing array of source books written by experts on a whole ream of uh, of cultures. Uh, you've got everything from transhumanism to the Vikings. You've got the Celts, and you've got uh, Florence. You've got uh, Mars attacks all the way through to uh, what it's like to live in a Middle Ages village. And these books tend to be so flavorful and so well written that you can not just refer to them as eminently usable role-playing game resources in any game whether you're using GURPS or not they're also brilliant for his history and to look at them and think of okay so this is representative of the way experts thought at the time times may change appraisals of certain periods may change but GURPS presents a lot of very neat little time capsules that you can re-examine and still find use for even if some of the content is uh, problematic or outdated. That's really interesting. Tom is there anything for you that, that sits within this kind of historical setting very well? Not uh, primarily but um, I had to think of seventh uh, seventh see um, which uh, lends a lot from uh, European history and after reading about a specific culture from uh, the seventh sea universe I got really interested about Poland <laughs> and uh, Polish history and I realized wow that fantasy story over there it's not too different from what actually happened and that was crazy so i i would say it's probably seventh c for me that's interesting that makes these games kind of multifaceted in another way as well doesn't it they become a kind of springboard to being an educational resource as well in some cases that desire to look into polish history off the back of that game is a really good example in terms of archaeology I can think of obvious settings within other types of gaming. Um, you know, the, the archaeo gaming in many ways, there are examples like you know, Tomb Raider to pick probably 
the most blatantly obvious one where archaeology is very much represented. Is there anything within RPG settings in which we find it in the same way can we think of? I suppose Mummy, in some respects, kind of touches on that area. What do you think, Tom? Have you got anything? I, I do have. I, <laughs> I uh, thought about a German RPG called The Dark Eye in, in English. Uh, Rhythm Role Playing did a series on that not too far along, uh, too far long ago. And there's um, a campaign called the Phileason Saga, which is roughly about uh, the story of uh, making a, a race around the world in 80 weeks. And on this trip, you dis you will do quite a lot of archaeological work, like entering a grave, finding um, all the, the scriptures and uh, pictures on the wall, uh, finding um, the corpses and, and some... Um, relics from the former times and, and you have to reconstruct what happened in this place from from all of this. This was so the best example of archaeology work in, in RPG I found so far. And from there I went to probably dungeon delving in the most broad sense. If you are interested in the history of the place you're truly visiting or it's just to go there to kill the lich lord then you probably won't do a lot of <laughs> research oh well no we can we can give D another shout out here surely can't we because yeah. it's a <laughs> if it's not a piece of archaeology surely yeah sometimes they're sewers but even sewers and aqueducts are archaeological uh, a lot of the time uh so there's a there's some there are some interesting ones. You mentioned Mummy the Curse. Mummy is a fantastic series for looking back at one's history, especially as it has a certain time hopping nature to it where your characters are amnesiac by default and as they stay awake for longer they regain memories of their past and the civilization from which they originate. Uh, but one that doesn't really get discussed as an archaeological game but very much is, is uh, Numenera by Monty Cook Games. Uh, Numenera could very well be seen as post-apocalyptic because it's seen as, it's called, I think, the Ninth World. It's supposed to be the Ninth Great Human Civilization, and uh, or Global Human Civilization. And you have no idea, really, of what's happened to the prior eight, except that you live in the ruins of eight civilizations or eight epochs worth of humanity's wreckage. And rather than it being a game of picking through the ruins in a very bleak sense, like a lot of post-apocalyptic games are, it's more about reconstruction, uh, delving into history to rediscover lost technologies, to analysing the works of your distant, distant ancestors to find out what your path might be. And uh, it's probably the most optimistic post-apocalyptic game because it's all about exploration. It's all about finding abandoned cities, tombs, um, 
temples and things that are from a medieval fantasy perspective look positively futuristic you know there's a science fiction element to it as well because your civilization is very much in that medieval come renaissance era but some of the civilizations prior to yours reached far beyond where you are now and you don't know what killed them off or whether they just ascended you know found the rapture or shot off to a different planet or all killed themselves in a massive nuclear holocaust there's stories for every single one and that means archaeology is embedded in the in the game setting um everything about where you are exploring is about history and i think it does it really well just a short add-on they um uh they reward you with experience for great discoveries mm. that's it's like the core system for advancement it's amazing. yeah yeah you get no experience for killing things it is always always about discovering things excellent there's some great examples there I'd just like to wrap this up, looking at the time, we're just about to come up to an hour, uh, with asking you both for two recommendations. One of those is a recommendation if somebody is interested in this whole aspect of crossover between folklore or archaeology or a kind of social history and gaming, 